I'm excited to continue with Ephesians this morning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so as we continue to work through this, I uh, appreciated the recap that Pastor Davis gave us from the first few weeks. I want to remind you that it, you could be following along with us. In fact, I want to encourage you to be following along with us uh, as we go. Uh, and so we'll be starting Ephesians 3 next week. If you're not sure what verses those are, out at one of the resource tables, we have a sheet that tells you uh, what scriptures we're tackling each week um, that you can kind of be following along with. But I think that you'll get more out of it. Um, hopefully you're going to get plenty out of it regardless. But I think that you'll get more out of it if this is scripture that we're digging into today that you have already immersed yourself in, right? To prepare for what we're going to be uh, talking about. And today we're talking about unity. You, 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 isn't it awesome that the, the topic of unity and oneness in, in the church continues to come up in Paul's writings, whether it's 1 Corinthians or Romans or now that we're in Ephesians, that this idea of oneness continues to come forward. Uh, except this time, it's coming up a little differently right? The way he deals with unity, he's not correcting anyone, right? This isn't a corrective letter that he's written to the church. It's an encouraging letter that he's written to the church. He wants them to realize everything that they have at their disposal. And that includes each other. But unfortunately, they're doing the same thing that a lot of us do. They're living in a way that isn't binding them together, but, but it's drawing lines to keep them separate. Let me ask you, how comfortable are you around somebody that is completely unlike you? Somebody that doesn't look like you, that doesn't think like you, maybe somebody whose first language isn't yours, somebody whose political beliefs are completely different than yours, somebody who views the world and the problems of the world in a different way. Maybe I know a couple of people. And when I say a couple, I mean a couple. I know a couple of people that will thrive in that setting. They love to be around people that are different than them. You know what they're called to be? They're called to be missionaries mostly. Right? Because when you thrive around people that are wildly different than you, then God has a special way that he can use you for ministry. Most of us, though, we aren't comfortable in that situation. Most of us thrive best where there's homogeny. Homogeny is just a fancy word for saying same. We like it when people are like us. And it makes sense, Right? It makes sense because it's more comfortable. It's more comfortable to be around people that look like me, talk like me, think like me, believe like me. That's just easier. It maybe isn't best, but it's easier. And we ought to be careful. Like that's one of the reasons that the church can struggle. There aren't very many. Listen, uh, and, and we have a great mix of, of age ranges here at Blessed Hope, but there aren't many churches, right, that are multi-generational because homogeny even gets to that level, right, where, where we, we like to be in a church with people that are all like us. Why? Because then we usually agree on stuff. 
on the extra stuff, on whether the lights are on or off, whether the drums are in or out, whether the music is loud or soft, whether or not Matt preaches 30 minutes or 45 minutes, right? Whatever it is, like if we're around people that are like us, we all tend to agree on those ancillary things. And so we love homogeny and I get it. And, and the Christians in Ephesus loved homogeny. But Paul is telling them in this chunk that we're going to deal with that that's probably not the way they ought to operate. And it's certainly not the way that they will thrive as a body of Christ. And so the challenge for us today is, is for us to think about as we go through this section of the letter, what does this look like for us? To start to operate under this idea that, you know what? Maybe we're not all supposed to look and think the same way. See, we have a problem. Our problem is that we know, we know, right, that the door of the church is wide open. And we know that Jesus wants to save everybody. We know that truth. Here's, here's where the problem kicks in, though. Whether we know it or not, this is what most of us assume. Most of us assume this, that no matter what they look like when they come through the door, if Jesus saves them, then pretty soon they'll start to look like me. See, that's, that's what we've decided, right? We've decided that our way of, of Christian, our brand of church, our way of doing it is the right way. Yeah, all kinds of people are welcome to come into the church, right? They don't have to look like me. They don't have to think like me. They don't have to do things the way I do them. They don't have to like what I like. But if Jesus gets them, and they become a Christian, then my assumption is that pretty soon they're going to start to look and think and do things the way I do them. Right? And, and the problem is that that's actually not true. There are a few things, right, that are what we call majors. They are major doctrinal truths that we cannot compromise, we cannot change, we cannot get away from. And then there are a lot of things that are different than that. They're about preferences that, that really aren't even about the Christian faith. They're just about the way I live out my faith in what I think and believe, right? Like, I mean, how much of that do we have going on right now? I have heard from so many people, and when I say so many people, I mean so many that I can't count, that I have no idea how you could be a Democrat and be a Christian, and then I have heard from so many people, and when I say so many people, I mean so many people that I can't even count. How in the world could you be a Republican and be a Christian? And they're both, from their perspective, right. They don't understand it. They can't see it. Doesn't mean they're not believers, but they're coming into this with completely different understandings. Right? Not about Jesus, not about salvation, but about the way the world works and, and what our role as Christians in the world is. And see, some of you right now, you're like, well, that's just dumb. That's just dumb. You can't be a Christian and think that way. But trust me, there's other people on the other side thinking, well, that's just dumb. You can't be a Christian and think that way. And what Paul's going to tell us in this text, and he's going to do it by talking about Jews and Gentiles, people that are so ideologically different, right, is that in Christ, some of that stuff has to become secondary, right? And we have to be open to the idea that we are now joined. 
And that people won't think and look the way that we think and look. They won't believe everything that we believe. They'll believe the same fundamental core truths about the gospel. And then after that, we have to be open to having a relationship and our oneness trumping our preferences. Let's get into this as we go. And I know you're going to have lots of questions as we go, and so you can feel free um, to write them down and ask me. And if I offend you, I'm sorry, um, and I didn't mean it. Um, I'll say that even before I do it, because I don't intend to offend anybody, but I always do. Right? So let's just jump in and, and get into Ephesians together. But I hope that we can challenge maybe some of the ways that we process this. So uh, I'm, I promise I turned it on and I got nothing. There it is. All right, so we're going to jump right in. We've got, we've got 12 verses to get through, and it's going to take us a minute. So, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, listen, we don't have to get into all of this. I, I, I just will remind you that circumcision was the process, right, of, of a physical thing that, that we did to, to male babies, right, when they were eight days old, and it was the way that we signified that they were in the covenant community of Israel, right? Circumcision is one of those things. In fact, nobody in the ancient Mideast was circumcised just for kicks, right? It's not a thing that we do for fun, it's something that happened as a sign of the covenant, right? It was something altogether new. And it was physical, and it was something that was done so that people could enter into the community. And it happened when they were infants, and so here's the deal, right? Circumcision was just for Jews. If you were a Jew, this was normative. If you were not a Jew, there was no reason for it. Why would you ever do that? Right? And so they didn't engage in this. And, and what happened is we started to think about Jews and non-Jews as circumcised and uncircumcised. Right? In fact, it was an insult to call someone uncircumcised. What does David say to Goliath? Right? As, they're, as they're facing each other down um, in the valley as they're getting ready to have this mano a mano contest. Right? He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine right? Uh, that's what he was, right? He was an uncircumcised Philistine. David didn't mean it though in a descriptive way. David wasn't describing for him what he was. David was insulting him because the uncircumcision, that group, was always, according to the Jews, less than. They were always less than because the Jews, the circumcised group, they were close to God because they were God's community, everybody else was far away. We call them Gentiles. So in that culture, we had two groups of people. We had Jews and we had Gentiles, which was everybody else. The uncircumcision. Now, historically, we have to ask why. Why did that happen? Why are there two groups to begin with? Why, why is it that they're separated? Well, they're separated because um, this is what God did to try to bring his truth to the entire world. See, in Genesis 1 through 11, it's just God. Everybody knows it. 
right? They know there's a creator God. They know there's God. Whether they choose to follow God or not is the question. In fact, what happens when we read this in Romans is what happens is many people, most people, instead of honoring the God they know, the God that created everything, most people, what they did is they pushed him away and they started doing things their own way, like Adam and Eve did. And they started following their own way. In fact, it got so bad that in Genesis 6, God sends a flood to hit the reset button. In doing so, God demonstrates that, you know what? Sin is evil and evil must be paid for. There is a judgment that is necessary. And he hits the reset button and starts over with Noah and his family. Then you keep reading in Genesis and guess what? It happens again, right? The whole world starts over with Noah and his family. They know there is one creator God. They're not confused about that. They know it. But instead of following him, many reject and turn away and start to do their own thing. They create their own religions. They start to worship not the creator, but the created Right? The story of humanity and God isn't that we started worshiping all kinds of gods and then finally discovered, no, there was just one. The story is we knew there was one and we rejected him and went our own way and created our own thing. And eventually God intervened. First he intervenes by bringing a flood, demonstrating his justice. But then in Genesis 11, he intervenes in a different way. He doesn't bring destruction, but he takes the people and he scatters them. And then after he scatters the people, he takes one man named Abram, later Abraham, and he takes him and he enters into a covenant with him to make him a special chosen nation, a chosen race that will be God's own people. And they set up a system of honoring God through the way they live. And the intention is that this special, not, he's not going to, he's like, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood. I'm going to do it differently. I demonstrated my justice. Now I'm going to demonstrate my mercy and my grace. And he chooses his own special nation and he raises them and he grows them into this powerful thing. And he says, by the way you live, you will point all of these other people who have rejected me You'll point them to me. Your way of living will be a sign to them. It'll be light to them. It'll be salt to them. They'll see you and they'll come back to me. That's why the Jews existed. That's why God created them. It's why he set up both moral law and ceremonial law. When they followed this, it was supposed to point people back to him. Here's the problem. The Jews were bad at it. They didn't do it well. Not consistently. Instead of using their position to draw people to God, they use their position to set themselves up as better than. To look down on. Instead of looking at compassion with those on the outside saying, look, don't you know that God loves you and he wants you? Come and find out. They looked at with with derision and they called you the uncircumcised, unclean, get away. And that's the way it was. 
And we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul says, but, but God will save anybody that will come to Jesus. You were dead, but thanks be to God, by the grace available through Jesus, he has made you new. And here's the thing, right? If God is going to make people new, anybody, God will make anybody new. Anybody can become a Christian by turning to Jesus. Well, then what's going to happen? Anybody can end up in the church. And this is the problem. See, the early church um, was primarily Jews. At the beginning, the early church was made up of Jews. Why? Because those are the people that were understanding that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised through Israel all those centuries. So the early church was made up of Jews. And then eventually, it started to include, because the gospel is for everybody, it starts to include Gentiles. And one of the first tests of the early church was, would they allow Gentiles in? Or did they first have to go get Jewish, then get in? In fact, that was a big argument. There, there's, you can read about that in Acts 15. There were some people that would say, whoa, time out. If you want to be a Christian, first you have to go become a Jew, then you can become a Christian. Right? It's like some of us going, if you want to be a Christian, that's all good, but you've got to start to think the way I think, right? About immigration, about refugee resettlement, right? Some of you got so like, ooh, you didn't like it when Matt started talking about the refugees that had been resettled by Lacrosse, La Wisconsin. And you're like, he's, he's like, we love the opportunity. We're going to minister to the Muslims that are there. And you're like, wait a minute, why are we letting Muslims? Stop it, right? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You can think however you want to think about these things. But you can't elevate the way you think about these things to Christian thought. You can't decide that all Christians are going to see it the way you see it. And that's, that's what was happening, right, in the early church. They would be like, look, you can be a Christian, but first you've got to go do everything Jews do. Then you can be a Christian. You've got to follow the ceremonial law. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to follow all of this. Then you can come over here and be a part of us. Of course, the early church, the leaders said, no, that's absolutely false. That's not the way it goes. Because you're not Jews and Gentiles anymore. You're something brand new. This is what Paul's addressing. He says, therefore, remember, you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. You were part of the uncircumcised group, right? And who called you that? Well, the circumcised group called you that, right? Remember, you were separated from Christ, Right, because Gentiles didn't know Jesus. Here's the deal. They had a lot of gods. Their favorite in Ephesus, where Paul's writing this letter, their favorite god was the goddess Diana. They followed the goddess Diana. They worshipped at her temple. They were all in on the goddess Diana. But Paul says, that doesn't matter. You were, as part of that group, you were without Christ. Kind of a blow there to anybody that says, well, you know what? Don't worry about it. If you're just sincere, you'll get there at the end. No, you won't. Right? Paul doesn't paint this as a, hey, you could pick whichever goddess you want to follow, right? No, Paul says, you were without Christ. That's tragic. You were without Christ. You were separated. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't part of this citizenship. You weren't part of this community, God's special group. You were on the outside looking in. Now, you could convert to Judaism, 
be what they call a proselyte. You could, you could decide that you wanted to be Jewish and you could go through a ceremony and you could learn things and then you could be baptized into the community, but you're always a foreigner baptized into the community. You're not natural. They were always held back from citizenship. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Right? God made a special covenant with Israel. So when they sinned, guess what they did? They had provision. They would take the lamb. And they would sacrifice the lamb. And the blood of the lamb would cover their sin. And they would be forgiven for a time of their sin. But that was for Jews. You couldn't go worship that way if you weren't a Jew. The covenant promises of God weren't for them. You had no hope. Listen, the problem with the goddess Diana, the problem with whatever it is that we tend to follow, is ultimately they have no hope. Pagan religions, our best ideas, whatever religious practices we think we can follow, they don't really help us live this life, and they certainly don't help us in the next life. There is only hope through the one true God, and they were without God in the world. Their situation was desperate. As a community of people, anybody that wasn't a Jew was destined for this problem. And here's the thing. The Jews never let them forget it. Instead of being salt and light, drawing them in, they just continued to remind people that they were the covenant nation of God and other people were not. That's why God brought discipline upon them. That's why God brought discipline on Israel. If we read through the Old Testament, sometimes they did well. There were individuals that did well, but as a nation, right, they continued to reject people that needed the gospel. We have to be careful as a church that we're not doing the same thing. But now, that's who you were. But now, Christ Jesus, who once you were far away from, you've been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. Right? He says there used to be this separation between the circumcision and the uncircumcision. The, the people that were close to God, the people that weren't close to God. There used to be this separation, but now there is no separation because you were brought near by the blood of Christ. Get that. The blood of Jesus Christ. Now this is, this is the part that really gets personal for us if we're honest with ourselves. The blood of Christ takes care of the only thing that ever divided you from people that aren't like you. Sin. The only reason, the only reason that you were divided from people, the only thing that kept you away from people, the only thing was sin. There was no other legitimate reason for division. But they think differently than I think. Yeah, I know. Right? They, 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 practice things differently than I practice things. They speak differently than, yeah, I know all of that. I get all of that. But the only thing that ever really legitimately separated was sin. And now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ breaks down any dividing wall. 
keeps going. He says, for he himself is our peace. He made both of us one and he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? Like, like, so whatever it is that made us at odds with each other, once we become one in Christ, those things stop being the most important thing. Does somebody think differently about you than COVID? Yes, somebody does. I don't know what you even think about COVID, but I promise you there's somebody that thinks differently. Does somebody think differently about you or or differently than you about immigration? Yes, right? Does somebody think differently than you about vaccines? Sure. About public school versus homeschool? Yeah, right? Do they think differently about about universal health care than you do? Sure, right? You can be on different sides of all of those issues and still be Christians because the main dividing line, sin, was destroyed. Here's, here's my problem, though, with the church a lot of times. When I read Facebook and, and when I hear comments and I have conversation with people in the church and with people outside of the church, one of the main things that we do and that we're known for is not the cross of Christ. One of the main things that we're known for are these beliefs that we think come with being a Christian that don't really have to come with being a Christian. They don't. Now, because we like homogeny around here, most people that we know that are Christians think like us. But that doesn't have to be the way that it is. We have to be really careful about this. If we were to live somewhere else and in, in, uh, in a different part of the world, we could be at church with Bible-believing, professing Christians who might think differently on a lot of issues than we do. And that's got to be okay. That's the point that Paul's making to, to the church here, is that they're, they're missing out on the full benefit of what God has for them. This oneness, right? The dividing line, the sin has been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. And when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he's talking about a legitimate wall, right? Because if you went to the temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall, a literal, physical brick wall that Gentiles were not allowed to get through. They could be out here. They could come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. But they had to stay in the court. It was called the court of Gentiles. Now, it was never meant to be a bad thing. They had to stay in the court of Gentiles because that's where the Jews in love were supposed to come out and teach them about God. And, And they were supposed to be moved by this truth about God and they were supposed to surrender their lives to God. Right? And they were supposed to then enter into the covenant community of Israel as a convert. Right? But, but that's not what happened. In fact, that's why Jesus flipped out um, in the temple um, during Holy Week. Right? Remember when he, when he took the, the braid and he, and he put it into a whip and he started knocking over tables and telling them that this was meant to be a house of prayer and they had made it a den of thieves. Like when, when he went nuts in the temple... Right? The reason he did that is because where they had set up shop, where they had started to do these detestable things, was in the court of Gentiles, where people were supposed to be coming to learn about God and be moved to, to enter into a covenant community. And they were getting in the way of that. 
But now, that, that, that dividing wall is gone. How? Well, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so that making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's a lot of words. Here's what it means. It means he got rid of the old covenant. How did Jesus accomplish all this through his blood? Well, he got rid of the old covenant. He took Judaism and he made it obsolete. Not as a race of people, but as a religious system, he made it obsolete. By creating something new. He calls it a new man. One new man in place of the two. There used to be Jews and Gentiles, right? What Jesus did by getting rid of the old covenant, getting rid of the Jewish religious system, was he brought us into something else. The something else is being Christian. Now, some of us don't like the term Christian. We don't like the term Christian because it's been co-opted. Because in our culture, sometimes Christian means I believe in God, I believe in heaven, I believe in hell, and so I'll try to be a good person so I can go to heaven. So I'm a Christian. It's not what Christian means. Christian means this, that God literally ended who you were and he made you something new. So now the most important thing about you is your relationship with him, your citizenship in heaven. Were you an Israelite? Were you a Greek? Were you a Roman? Right? Were you African? None of that matters anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross. He abolished the law of commandments. He took the two groups, Gentiles and Jews, and he, and he made them one new man in place of the two, making peace all through the cross, killing the hostility. So as Christians now, we are something altogether different. This is why, listen, this is why we don't have to practice the Old Testament. This is, this is where I would challenge somebody that would say, well, as Christians, shouldn't we still be following all of the Old Testament law? Shouldn't we be watching what we eat and eating only clean foods? Shouldn't we be following the ceremony? Shouldn't we be doing all of these things? No, right? Because here's what it says. It says that, that he abolished the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. When Jesus comes in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I, I came to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And in doing so, it no longer has a place. You're like, okay, Matt, then why do we still have to follow some of those old laws? Have you ever wondered why we have to follow some Old Testament laws and not all of the Old Testament laws? It's because some of them are what we call moral laws, and some of them were ceremonial religious laws. Moral laws, like the ones we find in the Ten Commandments, they continue because they're about doing what's moral and what's right. Ceremonial religious laws, we don't follow anymore. You want to get a tattoo, get a tattoo. You want to wear a shirt that's a cotton poly blend, go nuts. You want to have bacon wrapped shrimp? Of course you do. 
right? We, we reject the ceremonial law. Some of you had a look on your face like, why would I do that? Why would you not? <laughs> See, we reject the ceremonial law because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. The moral law we follow, sure. Because that was always about right living. And Jesus reiterates the moral law. So do the, the disciples as they, as they teach and preach. But listen, you are no longer what you were. You are now a Christian. And the thing about being a Christian, right, is that what that does is that joins us with every other Christian. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, here's what we know. This is where we stumble. Be careful. Here's what we always say. We always say, I know that in Christ, we are all equals. Right? We just think, you be equal over there and I'll be equal over here. We're all equals, but life would be still be easier if you just would agree with me because I'm right. The problem is it doesn't really work that way. And it's not that he makes us equals, but that he joins us, right? It's not that you and I are equal, but separate. It's that you and I are joined together as one new nation, as a one new people. We are citizens of heaven together. That's what's happened. Let's finish up here. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with saints and members of God's own household, right? You're not who you were. You're something new. You're together. You're citizens together. You're not equal, but separate, but you're joined, right? This is, this is all through the gospel writings, all through the epistles, that, that Paul and the New Testament authors are breaking apart these divisions. Slave, free. That division doesn't matter. You're now one person. Man, woman. Now forget it. You're one, right? You're joined. You're not just equal but separate, but you're together. Jew, Gentile. You're one. Republican, Democrat. I don't care. Black, white. Ah, we're all good. We're all one. And that means that you will be one with people that are markedly different from you and you have to be okay with it. You've got to be. And that oneness is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, yes, because the apostles and the prophets are the ones that did the teaching about Jesus. Who he is and what he desires and, and how he wants uh, to make them free from sin. So it's, it's the foundation of their teaching that's still being laid. And the cornerstone that we build on is Jesus. And if you're trying to build on some other stone, man, then forget it. Listen, there is no other thing but Jesus. There is no other cornerstone than Jesus. There is no other way to the Father except for Jesus. There is no other way to this freedom, this sameness, this togetherness except Jesus. That's how the Bible teaches it. And if the Bible is right, and I believe that it is, and I believe there's reason to think that it is, then this is it. 
Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen, this is, this is how we wrap up this idea that the reason that we have to understand that we're not just equal, but we're joined is because together we are being built into God's temple. It's happening. And it's happening with people that are different than you. And it's okay because it's making you new. Here, think about it new this way. How many of you have ever bought a brand new car? Yeah, if you're like me, you buy used. That's how we roll at my house. We buy used and we let somebody else pay for the depreciation. Thanks, Dave Ramsey. But you do you. I don't want you to feel bad about your new car purchase. But when you buy a new car, you think, oh, it's brand new. No, it's not. It's a new one of something that's already existed. It rolled off the assembly line just like a bunch of other ones like it before. Every once in a while, though, they make something new. And it's really new. They've never made it before. Right? Um, Carrie once bought the first year. Right? She, she got a brand new Chevy Beretta. Maybe it was, it was used, but, but the one she bought came out the first year they were made. Never buy a car the first year they make it. Lots of stuff goes wrong. They need a couple of years to work it out, right? But, but have this brand new. That's what new means. New is not like the new of something that there's lots of. When he says, I've made them into a new man, it's a new Christian. It's something that never existed before. There were all of these other things, yes, but I made them into something new, something that had never before existed. Christian, following Jesus following Jesus in the most important things, being unified and joined together. Not just equal, but joined. And if the gospel is good for every walk of life, then that means that the church should be full of every kind of person. Even if they don't think like you. Even if they're not from your background. Even if being around them makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. That's the gospel. It's how it brings us together, not just individually, but corporately. All right, we're going to wrap it up here, and, and here's what we're going to do. Um, we're just going to take a minute to come and take communion together. Um, and, and so here's what's going to happen. Uh, typically, when we've done communion lately, in a post-COVID world, we've just gone to get it. But Lowell, David, I'll ask you guys to come, and I'm going to give you some choices. Um, in a minute, I'm going to pray. The music is going to start. And you have two choices. You can either just come down um, as you feel led and take one of the, the still the, the, you know, single serve communion um, elements, but you can take it from one of these two men and, and just receive a, a blessing from them and go and have a seat. If you're uncomfortable standing in line or getting that close to them, which I get, no, you guys are fine, then you can just make your way over to the table and, and get one on your own, okay? Um, but let me pray for us. We'll take communion together. And here's what we're doing as we take communion. We're celebrating what Jesus did to make us one. Because before that, we were very, very separate. And we were all divided by this thing called sin. But through the blood of Jesus, there is no longer the sin that divides us. We are now joined. 
And so as we take communion and we remember that his body was broken on the cross and that his blood was poured out, we are joined. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the gospel that joins us together, that frees us from our sin and binds us with our brothers and sisters as citizens of heaven, as Christians. God, thank you for the truth that we don't all have to be the same. But God, that you save us all. Help us to remember that as we, as we choose to do life with people different than us. And we, and we remember that that's not just okay, but good. Father, thank you for your blood that, that was shed on the cross that gave us freedom from our sin. Thank you for your body that was broken that paid our penalty. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.